You're listening to Commute, the podcast. Congratulations, you'll be smarter when you get there. What up? Welcome into Commute, the podcast. I'm Dave. And I'm Jay. And we are about to take you on a deep dive on three topics that we find interesting, and we're betting that you might just find them interesting, too. We can promise you this. You'll be smarter when you get there. On this edition of Commute. Recently, the chess world has been rocked by a cheating scandal that in some ways threatens the future of the game itself. So this raises an important question, like how do you even cheat at chess? Maybe you don't even notice them when you're rolling your shopping cart down the frozen food aisle at your local grocery store. Or maybe you're like millions of people around the world and you throw them in your cart just because. Either way, there's no denying... Fish sticks are kind of weird. A standard marathon race is 26.2 miles. But how did we come to choose such an obscure number? All of that on this edition of Commute. Let's get it. So Dave, when it comes to games and competition, is it safe to say that you are kind of a known cheater? Well, I do have that reputation, so I guess I'll have to just kind of own it. Uh, because, I, yes, I have cheated at many a game. <laughs> so, yeah, I guess I am a game shooter. Um, like, yes, I've gone through phases where, like, I would be the banker at Monopoly. And, you know, I'm, I'm taking a little extra money when no one's watching. Um, you know, I've, right. I've been known to move my character ahead maybe a space or two. <laughs> it's called a competitive edge, but whatever. Continue. Oh, okay. So it's not cheating. It's a competitive edge. Uh, yes, yes. Well, we're going to talk about cheating in chess, and we've talked about chess before on this show, but it's been a really long time ago. It was like one of our first episodes. Yeah. We're kind of revisiting it because right now the chess world is kind of in this massive controversy around cheating. Uh, Dave, the chess world champion Magnus Carlsen has just completely upended the chess world over the past few weeks, and it started in St. Louis back in early September after he just abruptly quit a tournament after a loss, and then a few weeks later he resigned a game after just making one move. Now, in both of these games, Carlson was playing a 19-year-old American grandmaster named Hans Niemann. Now, at the time, Carlson didn't really say this out loud. Now, he more recently has, but the message behind the sudden resignations was that Carlson believed Niemann is a cheater. The drama has grown from there, with Neiman publicly admitting he had received illegal assistance in an online match a couple times in the past, but that these instances were only isolated, like when he was like 12 years old or something like that. So in response to the statement, Chess.com, the biggest host of chess games in the world, suspended Neiman, evidently believing that the cheating goes deeper than just some youthful indiscretions. It's important to understand here, too, Dave, just how elite of a player Carlson is. He's been ranked number one in the world for more than a decade. He has won each of the past five chess world championships. So the idea of Neiman, this 19-year-old kind of up-and-comer beating him, was already kind of crazy. And so within this scandal sort of exists this pressing question, right, which is how do you cheat at chess? And Dave, to understand how to answer this, you first have to understand that chess technology has taken massive steps forward in the past couple decades. All you need is a smartphone to pull up a chess engine website that can calculate the best moves within seconds, enough to where you could take on a grandmaster using this sort of technology and win. 
Games at the highest level can sometimes last hours, and bathroom breaks offer a convenient window for a would-be cheater to calculate future moves. This exactly isn't unprecedented either, Dave. In 2006, a player, Veselin Topalov, accused his opponent, Vladimir Kromnik, of taking too many bathroom breaks during a world championship match. And then in 2019, Latvian Grandmaster Igor Zrausis was suspended by the World Chess Governing Body after he was caught using a smartphone in the bathroom during a match. When the COVID pandemic pushed tournaments from in-person to online, cheating in these tournaments absolutely exploded. Chess.com had to shut down 18,000 accounts in 30 days in November of 2020 for cheating violations. Accounts of average players to grandmaster and everyone in between. This level of cheating does, at some level, raise an existential crisis in a way for the game. While a player can't exactly pull out a chess engine during an in-person match, there are all sorts of technology that a cheater could use to gather information from a chess engine during an in-person match. All it takes is an accomplice with a chess engine and a device small enough to fit in your shoe or somewhere else on your body that vibrates messages to the player. Accomplices then can vibrate a code to move a certain piece and to avoid others to gain a small enough advantage to win the game. Simply being told which piece to play is often enough for someone like a grandmaster to understand why a computer chose a certain move. In an article for the Wall Street Journal, Joshua Robinson says it this way, In a way, it isn't so different from the scandal that upended baseball when the Houston Astros stole opposing pitcher signs and relayed it to their batters by banging trash cans in the dugout. In another way, it's completely different. Even knowing the pitch type, the Astros had to execute and hit a ball at 95 miles per hour. But when you know the move in chess, the only physical skill is picking up a piece. And all of a sudden, it becomes a duel of humans versus computers. Dave, insiders of the game have suggested that more security at tournaments is definitely needed, such as tape delays and metal detectors. Neiman, within all this, has denied all the allegations, despite his victory over Carlson, coming at a time when he was the lowest-rated player in the field. After the initial match, he said, quote, It must be embarrassing for the world champion to lose to me. I feel bad for him. (laughs) Neiman then went on to lose or draw his final six games after that match. In the days since, Carlson has released a statement officially accusing Neiman of cheating to clear any doubt on why he refuses to play him. But since he hasn't actually released any evidence, it sort of complicates the future of the scandal. It's one thing to accuse, but catching someone in the act of cheating is a whole other thing. But it's undeniable that the sport itself is at a crossroads, one that needs some direct action to sort through. The main issue I have with all of that is the that he was using the bathroom too many times. Because as somebody who pees a ton, I, I drink a lot of liquid, and I pee a lot. I know you pee a lot, too. You actually might pee more than me. You have one time, I, I can't remember if it was a movie, actually at the movie theater or a movie at home, but you got up and, and literally peed twice in 10 minutes. So sometimes... You gotta go, you gotta go. You gotta go, you gotta go. Now, I don't know who in the world died and made the National Institute on Aging the pee authority. But they say if you pee more than seven times, you should see your doctor. Get out of here. That's seven times per day. I probably pee seven <laughs> times before noon. Hey, my friend, are you a seafood guy? Like, you getting yourself down there to Captain D's every once in a while for a little seafood sampler or not? Well, I was prepared to say yes, but then you said Captain <laughs> D's as if that 
is seafood, and it's just not. Uh, so no to Captain D's. Uh, you know, I want to say yes, because I do like it, but at the same time, like if I'm not at the beach, I'm not really eating it. Now we do live in a landlocked state, so that kind of matters. First of all, apologies to our listeners who work at Captain D's. We would still gladly accept a show sponsorship from you. Um, (laughs) number two, yeah, I'm kind of with you on that though. Like I don't dislike seafood. It's just, I'm not going to eat it if I'm not at the beach. Yeah. Like when was the last time you like woke up on a Tuesday after work and you were like, you know what? I think I'm going to go get some crab legs. I can tell you it never. But to be fair, Jay, as we just said, there is a major difference between fresh seafood that you'd order in a coastal town and the kind of seafood that they're serving up at McDonald's on the McDonald's McFish sandwich. Which is it called the Mc? It has to be called the McFish, right? Uh, it's not called the McFish. Well, it should be. It's what a just, missed opportunity. It's just called like fish sandwich or something. That's terrible. Well, regardless, <laughs> perhaps no single food item defines any entire category of food items more than the fish stick when it awkwardly waves the flag for the frozen and or fast service seafood industry. But Jay, while it may appear kind of gross, and at least in my eyes, unnecessary, the fish stick, it turns out, is kind of fascinating. So how did this weird little finger food become such big business? Well, Jay, for starters, there are many peculiar facts about the fish stick. It's a food so bizarre that it actually required a U.S. patent. There are world records for stacking fish sticks into a tower, which is 74, by the way. Good luck beating that. (laughs) And factories in Germany that produce so many fish sticks each year that they could circle the earth four times. (laughs) But, Jay, perhaps the most peculiar thing about fish sticks is the fact that they even exist at all. Introduced in 1953 by General Mills, fish sticks were part of a new wave of fried and breaded foods in the shape of a stick. This group included the delicious-sounding ham sticks, eggplant sticks, veal sticks, and who could forget the lima bean stick. Only fish sticks somehow survived. And they didn't just survive, Jay, they have thrived. A rite of passage for most kids in America, frozen fish sticks have been the subject of an entire episode of the Comedy Central show South Park, the main feature of a 2008 painting by the artist Banksy, and were even part of the recently deceased Queen Elizabeth's 90th birthday meal in 2016. <laughs> yes, fish sticks were on the menu. The British people, though, like they eat, they eat beans for breakfast, so we're not really taking like, uh, food advice from, uh, from the UK. <laughs> Paul Josephson, a Russian and Soviet history professor at Colby College in Maine, who self-nicknamed himself, by the way, Mr. Fishstick, is probably the best at explaining the bizarre success of the fishstick, having written what The Atlantic calls the defining scholarly paper on the subject. The research for Josephson's paper required him to get information from various seafood companies, a task that shocked Josephson with its difficulty. In some ways, it was easier to get into Soviet archives having to do with nuclear bombs, he told The Atlantic. While Mr. Fishstick is actually not a fan of fishsticks, his research into them found that actually most of us aren't fans of fishsticks. Instead, fishsticks exist because, well, to put it simply, Jay, we have too much fish. Following World War II, better fishing boats meant more fish. And Jay, I don't know if you knew this or not, but fish can spoil pretty easily. The solution, frozen fish, repurposed into something that resembled America's favorite fast food item, the chicken tender. 
And even folks that don't like fish like chicken tenders. You can almost pretend that fish sticks aren't fish. Ingo Heidbrink, a maritime historian at Old Dominion University in Virginia, told The Atlantic, consumers just don't seem to notice. And Jay, the pandemic was really good for fish sticks, with demand rising to record highs. In Germany, for example, it's reported that at least 7 million people eat fish sticks at least once per week. And proof that what sounds good to me might not sound good to you, and vice versa, can be found in the UK. While many people argue that fish sticks don't actually contain enough real fish to be considered fish, in the UK, they aren't called fish sticks at all. They're called fish fingers. And recent polling found that one in five adults in the UK think that they're actually made of fish fingers. So fish sticks, no one really loves them. But they exist, and they're easy. So Jay, bon appetit, my boy. Onward to the frozen food aisle at your local grocer. Let's get some fish sticks. So two things. One, the McDonald's fish sandwich is officially called the filet o fish So that's what you were looking for. And then two, uh, I guess I contributed to this in some way because during COVID, uh, you know, we were just so burnt out, like having to feed our kids. You know, it's like every day, like breakfast, lunch, dinner, breakfast, lunch. It's just like you get to the point where you're just like, take some fish sticks. So we started doing it. And, uh, you know, every time I took a, like, I would make them for my kids, I'd pick one up and I'd, I knew I didn't like them, but I'd just take a bite of it and I'd be like, oh, oh, yes, yeah, don't like it. And then, like, the next day, it's the same thing. Like, oh, well, I, maybe it'll be different this time. So there's a, there's just a strange power to the fish dip. Dave, so when it comes to the subject of marathons, uh, you are an experienced marathon runner yourself. Uh, and how many marathons have you run at this point? So I've run three. I uh, haven't run one now uh, for a few years. I finally got under four hours, which was always my goal. And it just takes so long to train for them. Uh, I'd like to run another one, but now I'm a dad, one kid, another one on the way. It's just hard to find the time. Yeah. I ran my first half marathon. It was something like, at this point, it's been like five years ago. And it felt like training for that just like was a full-time job. So I can't even imagine it's training tough. for a full In marathon. In many ways, it is. Yeah, because a full marathon, I mean, you have to get up to at least 20-some miles in the training, and you're doing that multiple times. Yeah. Now, Dave, you and our audience both have probably heard some version of the mythical tale of how the modern marathon was born, right? Like, you probably heard it in a history class, that in the year 490 BC, after the Battle of Marathon, in which the Greeks defeated the invading Persian army, a messenger named Pheidippides ran from the battle site back to Athens to bring the good news. You give me, and I, probably our listeners, a lot more credit than we're due. I have never heard that. <laughs> it's, it's just like world history teacher bias, I guess, because this is like something I tell my classes every year because it's just kind of a cool thing. It's the curse of knowledge, my friend. You just assume everybody knows what you know. <laughs> well, in 1896, during the first sort of modern version of what we know of as the Olympic Games, runners actually ran Pheidippides' old route, which ended up totaling 25 miles. In the years to come, marathons at the Olympics and outside of the Olympics sort of floated around this number, but there was no agreed-upon number codified as the standard distance. Then came 1908. In that year, the Olympics traveled to London, and the marathon event was supposed to cover roughly 25 miles. The only problem was that the most important people in the country, the royal family, wanted the race to start directly in front of Windsor Castle. Because of this, race organizers moved the starting line back a mile, which brought the total mileage to 26. 
The final 0.2 was tacked on to the end to also benefit the royal family so that the racers would finish right in front of their viewing box. Now, Dave, as an experienced marathon runner yourself, you know that the last 1.2 miles is probably the most difficult part of the entire race. At the games, the leader of the race was a man named Durando Pietri, and he began collapsing multiple times trying to finish out the race in the last mile. A man came to his aid, a journalist named Arthur Conan Doyle, and yes, it is that Arthur Conan Doyle who was knighted by the king and the author of Sherlock Holmes. In the Daily Mail, Conan Doyle wrote this about the end of the race. Through the doorway crawled a little exhausted man. He trotted for a few exhausted yards like a man galvanized into life, and then the trot expired into a slow crawl, so slow that the officials could scarcely walk slow enough to keep beside him. Another quote from the report reads like this, Good heavens, he has fainted. Is it possible that even at the last moment the prize may slip through his fingers? Every eye slides round to that dark archway. No second man has yet appeared. Then a sigh of relief goes up. I do not think in all that great assembly any man would have wished victory to be torn at the last instant from this plucky little Italian. It is horrible and yet fascinating, this struggle between a set purpose and an utterly exhausted frame. Now, Dave, after this, marathons continued to hover somewhere around 25 miles, but Conan Doyle's writing seems to have brought some level of special attention to the distance of 26.2 miles, giving it this sort of like a legendary status as a breaker of men. It captured the public imagination in a way, sort of becoming like a real runners can finish a 26.2 mile marathon because it's that last 1.2 that really separates them. So when the International Amateur Athletic Federation came together to finally standardize the marathon, they chose the London distance of 26.2 miles. In an article for Reuters, Stephen Downs stated that the marathon race may have been just as much a Conan Doyle creation as Sherlock Holmes himself. So how about this? I mean, it's interesting to see who maybe has the fastest marathon time ever, but I wanted to know who has the slowest marathon time ever (laughs) and my friend that record belongs to the japanese athlete shizo kanakuri 54 years eight months six days five hours and 32 minutes basically he participated in the 1912 olympics his teammate got sick and so he dropped out of the race to help his teammate but didn't tell anybody he dropped out so he just left the olympics and this is back in 1912. We're talking over 100 years ago. So nobody just ever did anything about it. They never reported that he had finished. In fact, Olympic officials started to refer to him as the missing marathoner because they had no idea where he was. <laughs> he reappeared 50 years later, and they said, you know, you could actually come back and finish. And so at 75 years old, he had gotten married, had six children, and had 10 grandchildren in the meantime. He came back to the race and finish <laughs> because why not and that's it thanks for listening don't forget to rate subscribe and review commute on apple podcast spotify or on your favorite podcast network we're on social check us out we're on facebook twitter and instagram and you can always say what up at our website commutethepodcast.com music for commute is provided by my main man jason sammons for jason and i'm dave Traub. we'll see you next week you get to the point where you're just like Take some fish sticks. So we started doing it.